All right, again, good morning. Welcome to Jericho Road. I see we're shuffling people. We just moved our sound booth to the back, and, and your regular spot has been taken. And so now, like, some, then they moved over to your spot. Now that spot's taken, and so there's a whole reshuffling here. Exciting, exciting days. It's like a brand new church, right? I've never seen church from this position. I sat in the same seat ever since we got in this building, right? All right, good to see you all, and uh, welcome those who are online joining us. Uh, let's start out with our shouts. What do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we say? I love God and I love you. So hello family and, and welcome back to our third week. We're right in the middle of our, 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 our travels through Titus as we're following the thread of do good in the book of Titus and do good as in make morally correct decisions in life. And so today we're going to see that this looks different for different stages of life. The things I needed to work on as a teenager are not the same things that I need to work on now as a, as a slightly older adult. Like, I'm a teenager from the 90s. I am a Gen Xer, totally stereotypical, uh, divorced parents, latchkey kid, full of anger, rage, and hate. When I was young, I was like, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam, they made sense to me. You know, I was angsty and dark and gray in Seattle and oh, everything was Gen X is, was me and and now I'm full of ice cream and ramen and like goodness and stuff. So much so that my, my daughter, she said that I'm not fat. She said I'm fluffy. And I wasn't even offended. I was like, you know, Gen X, no, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, I'm fluffy. It's good, you know. I don't have the same issues that I, that I had when I was younger. And in each stage of life, we need a different word from God. And today we're going to see some of that. We're going, to, we're going to see God's word for each of us, depending on the stage of life you find yourself in. We ended last week with this verse in Titus 2 and 1. He had told Titus, you, however, you've got to teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. It's teach good. Now, I know that I'm messing up everybody's grammar with this sermon series because I keep using good in the wrong way grammatically, but that's okay because it's for a good cause. <laughs> Matt, Matt Hagehara texted me, and he was like, I was praying. Uh, sorry, Matt, if I'm revealing your prayers. He was like, I was praying that I want to do really well at work and stuff. And, and he said, God, I want to really do good at work. And so, like, I'm even messing up uh, his prayer time. So, uh, fantastic, because he wanted to do morally right in all of the things he was doing. So, teaching sound doctrine, it's funneled or it's, it's applied differently on whatever life stage we're in. One time when I was really young, I heard this really cool idea, and it stuck with me. And I, I, not a lot of things stuck with me from when I was young, but this one uh, made a lot of sense. And, and I had been following it ever since I was actually in high school, even as not, not a believer at that point, or not a follower of Jesus anyway. Someone was saying, like, you only get to be your age once, so enjoy that age. So you'll only, and I was just telling my daughter this week, like, this is your last Friday prayer meeting as a 14-year-old, because she's going to turn 15 next week. And so this was her last time to pray as a 14-year-old. She'll never again get to pray as a 14-year-old. So I said, enjoy that time as a 14-year-old. And then, you know what? You're going to have some as a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old. You're going to only have these moments once in your life. And so don't worry about being older or younger. Just enjoy the very moment that you are. I think young people, like, older is going to come. I know there's a temptation to say, oh, I just wish I was older. I could do more stuff. I could, I could, and you have this kind of list of things that seems better if you were older. But don't worry. 
Don't rush. Just be your age right where you are right now. And our older folks, don't opine about the past and how good it was or how this it was or whatever it was. Just enjoy the life you get to live right now. Because this is the only time you get to be this healthy. It gets worse and worse. (laughs) So don't opine about when you used to or how I used to. Just enjoy exactly where you are because it's the only chance you're ever going to be in this moment at this age at this time. So let's look at Paul's advice for teaching different people at different ages. This comes from Titus chapter 2 if you're following along your Bible and of course the verses will be on the screens. Titus 2.2 he says, teach the older men, so he starts with the older guys, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound, sound in faith, sound in love and sound in endurance. So teach the older men. The command to teach means that it doesn't come naturally necessarily. It doesn't just, you arrive at a particular age and then you all of a sudden know everything. But rather we've got to be taught things. And Titus said some of the things that the older men in Crete have to really focus on is they have to live with the maturity and the wisdom that their years ought to have given them. I look at this uh, list of that's given to these men and these characteristics all point to calmness. They point to stability. They point to, to, to being firm, being stable, but being stable in all the right things. It says to be sound in your faith, to be stable in your faith or, or firm in your faith, to be firm in, and sound in your love, to be firm in endurance, or another word for endurance is patience. We look to our older men to show us what it looks like to live a life of faith, faith in your work. How does faith look like in your family? How does, how does faith show up at your church? And to do all those things in love. You see it right there. Be sound in faith, but do them in love. By this time in life, hopefully you've given up some of that young man's bravado where you've got to kind of impress everybody and, and be better and be overly macho, hopefully. You know, some, of you, some of you are still working on it. And now we've got to allow ourselves to love more openly. To, to show it and express it. And this is the hard part, especially for some of us that grew up in a slightly different generation that maybe you didn't see it from your own parents, a lot of love. But the Bible is telling you, you've got to show that. You've got to be sound in that. You've got to be firm in that. And you've got to make it visible for those that are around you. And then it says to have endurance, to stay with something and to not give up on it. Now, this is perfect because when you get older, you tend to harden in your ways, right? And that is fantastic, believe it or not, as long as you're hardening in the correct things. If you're hardening in your heart and you're like, the get off my lawn, old guy, that's not hardening in the right thing. The Bible says it wants you to be sound and firm and hardened in the right things, in faith and love and patience. Older men, not just patiently waiting around to die, but rather actively hardening for the good of God, using all the life lessons that God has brought you through to be a steady hand at the helm of of the church, a steady hand at the helm of, of your family, a steady helm to guide next generations into following God well, into doing good. Paul continues, he says, Likewise, teach older women, in the next verse, teach older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. 
Just as Titus had given special consideration to the older men, he now turns his attention and his address to, to older women who have their own set of unique temptations and, and opportunities. He tells them, you ought to be reverent in the way you live. And what this means is reverent means suitable for sacred office. It's like a, a, a priestess who goes about doing her priestess duties in the right way. He says, that's the way that you ought to be as you get older. Older ladies get to show us what godliness, what good looks like in real life. Seen in their lives and then copied by us. Then he says, don't be slanderers. This is a crazy one. This word slanderers is the, the word, you'll recognize it, a Greek word, but you'll know it. Diabolos. He says, don't be diaboloses. <laughs> don't be devils. We use that for the same word. Slanderer and devil is the same word, depending on whether it's a verb or a noun. So he says, don't be devilish or, or diabolic in the way that you speak towards one another. And I think this is the only persons that he says this to because older women have the ability by their words to speak either life or death in a way that other people can't. If young people say something to you, you're just like, that's a dumb young person. What do they know? Or if some equally aged person says something to you, you might ignore it because you think you know better than them. But there's a weight that comes from women who have experienced life, and if they say something to you, it can be incredibly life-giving. But on the flip side, it can also be incredibly damaging. And so he says, be careful, older ladies, how you talk to people because your, your words have weight. Because you have weight. You have value in communities. And this is true even among non-believers. Who, who's the boss of the, of the cookout? If you go to a cookout in anyone's family, it's the oldest lady who's there, right? She is, she is the boss of the cookout. Who... Men pretend to be in charge, but they are rarely in charge. Who is always almost in charge? The oldest lady of that home. Who's really pulling the strings? It's not that guy who's like, let's do this. It's whoever's behind him. That older lady, that older woman. And so it says, uh, be a huge blessing. Don't be a diabolos with how you talk about people. And then he says, not given too much, too much wine. Now, this was actually a common failing in the Roman and the Greek world. Um, so Paul recognized there's a special challenge. So he gives a really specific uh, uh, command to these older women who had been you know, maybe drinking a little bit too much wine. They were empty nesters, maybe. They didn't have to worry about putting their kids to bed. They didn't worry about going to bed at a certain time. And it's okay if you know things got a little woo at home, right? And so uh, there was a little bit of a problem there. And this maybe a modern direct equivalent. Okay, Not always does the Bible say one-to-one -one direct equivalent, but older ladies, be careful with how much you drink. And I think about it, especially now, like the too much wine meme. Like we've all seen like, you know, wine is good for everything and that kind of stuff. Maybe it carries a little bit too much truth for some of our older folks. So enjoy the wine. Just don't overly enjoy the wine. So don't be, don't be addicted too much on, on too much wine. And when he says addicted, he actually uses a, a phrase Paul had used earlier. He called himself, I'm a, we, in the first week we heard, I'm a doulos, or I'm a slave, a bond slave of God. And he, and he uses the same word here. He says, don't become a slave to wine. Don't become, a, not just addicted, but allowing that thing to control you. They were slaves to wine. It's funny how 
like things in our life, I think, can take over and, and make us slaves to those things. And sometimes, like, they're immoral things. They're things that you absolutely shouldn't be involved with, and, and you know it, and you feel guilty for it. And, but sometimes there, there are things that aren't amoral, that, that are, are, they're okay to have. Wine is okay to have. And so, but sometimes we become slaves to things that, that even by themselves aren't bad, but by becoming enslaved to it, it becomes a, a negative thing in our lives and has negative moral ramifications if we become enslaved to it. And, and the one I, I think I ponder about the most in our modern day, and I, and I wonder if that we, and we included and me included in the we, have become slaves to like our cell phone. I kind of think about that. Where like, I'm not talking about the thousand of you, good useful ways uh, scheduling, uh, using your maps, uh, things in work, answering emails, that kind of stuff. But it's the, the more subtle slavery that, that maybe we, we can't even put it down. When was the last time you used the bathroom without having the phone in your hand? Like I've said this before, right? Maybe, maybe you can't even drive without putting it in that little holder and you get it a stop sign and then you check, see if you got an email or check your Instagram. You can't even drive. The radio's on. You're driving, and you can't even drive. And and I, I can't even drive. Now I've, I've been leaving it in my pocket when I drive because, like, when it's sitting on that holder, it's, like, calling to me. And I wonder, like, gosh, am I enslaved to this stupid phone? Like, the phone itself isn't morally bad, but but has it taken control of me? Does it cause stress in my life that, that doesn't need to be there? Does it, does it cause distractions where I could have been praying or I could have been driving safe? <laughs> And instead, then I'm, then I'm not. I think every human is slave to something. And so why not decide to become slaves to the good things of God rather than to these things that are not very useful? And the final word he says to older women, he says to the older women, teach them to teach what is good. Teach them to teach what is good. Goodness isn't always easy to see in a world that blurs the, the line between good and evil, especially in our modern time. So through your words, older ladies, and through your deeds, you are the best people to teach us good. You have the weight, and you have the power, you have the status, you have the wisdom, and you have the ability. You have the voice. And so older women, you have a, something positive to strive toward. Even as you get older and older, good. Strive towards the good and then teach good. Moving to our next section, he jumps to the younger women. He says, uh, then you can urge younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husband so that no one will malign the word of God. So we have the shift to these younger women. And, and it says to love their husbands and love their children. Instructions for the young women begins with home matters. It begins with the family for these younger women. God has given you, younger women, a strategic position of influence and assistance to your husband and your children. And you must let love dominate that situation. Love's got to dominate your influence and assistance. And it's not that you don't do other things, because you do a million other things. But the first thing he says, hey, don't lose sight of the key most important thing, and that's your family. You are the glue of your family, young women. You are the, the most important voice in your family. It's becoming fairly popular, I think, to diminish a woman who takes this idea seriously. But we don't, and the Bible doesn't. I think there's no greater ministry 
than the family. We say it all the time. You can't be a pastor if you can't control your family. And so if family's our first ministry, even for our pastors, then it's the first most important ministry in God's eyes. This is a greater calling than a calling to the workforce. It's a greater calling than to the pastorate. It's a greater calling than to the missions field. That's how God thinks about you and your family. If you say, God, I'm going to go be a missionary, he says, okay, that's cool, but that's second best to being a minister in your own family. I think the great thinker, Dom Toretto, he he says it best here. But what's real is family. Your family. I don't have friends. I got family. (laughs) Thanks, Dom, for that, you know. I don't got friends, I got family, because Dom knows the importance of family, even over going to space and blowing things up, right? Family is the most important thing. We always make this joke at our house. My, my daughter and I, every time we see anything or like someone says, oh, that's really good, and we're like, but not as good as family, and we try to do the Dom, you know? Paul says, love for husband and children ought to be taught. Certainly aspects of that come naturally. But other aspects, you've you got to learn, you've got to practice, you've got to work on, especially aspects that, that reflect the, the life-giving sacrifice of, of Jesus. Those things got to be kind of taught. So young women, you've got to be constant learners. Where did we learn the best persons to learn from was just the verse before? <laughs> the older lady were said, like, teach, the, teach good, and the younger people were like, well, learn good. Take a class on families, read some books on family, like uh, uh, read literature, listen to podcasts, find things that will make you a master at your craft of family. And he says there's some additional qualities he wanted to highlight, self-control, purity, busy, be kind, and that sort of is like where a young woman's life is. There's this main thing, and then there's this, and this, and this, and this other this, and this is the longest list of it. He gives anyone? Why does he give young women the longest list? Because young women are the best persons to handle the longer list. They're the best ones to be able to juggle everything. How many mothers are in here? They juggle their kids, they juggle their friends, they juggle their, their husbands, they juggle their husband's parents and their own parents. They juggle a million things in their work and then their own hobbies and they're volunteering at church and they're helping in all these kind of ways. And so, so they've got this long kind of list because they are uniquely qualified to handle all sorts of stuff. Now these attributes that he lists, they're listed all throughout the New Testament for other believers, but he says, young ladies, make sure that that you are striving after the good, family first, and then doing those morally good things. Because this stage in life, this is the engine of life. Young ladies, you're going to be tired, and you're going to be overwhelmed. But God has given you a well of strength that is beyond what you even know. And ask any woman who's gone through it, on the front side of having kids and getting married, they thought they were strong. And on the back side, they're like, oh, I didn't know I was that strong. right? <laughs> because life is crazy. And this is the, the group that it's the craziest for. And so if you find yourself there, may God bless you. <laughs> I pray that <laughs> just hold on. You're stronger than you think you are. And your God is gooder than you think he is. So living good means, uh, he, he ends this to th- these ladies. He said, living good 
will shut up the haters. It's, you know, uh, it will keep them from maligning the word of God. But, but what does that mean? What it means is people are looking at you to be the word of God. They're reading your life. And the read of your life is them reading the Bible. Non-believers aren't going to open the Bible. How do non-believers malign the Bible? They can't. They don't read the Bible. What do they know about the Bible? But how does the Bible get maligned? If you're not the living Bible to them, if you're not living good, even in the middle of all of these opportunities, or difficulties, obstacles, but these opportunities to shine back to Jesus. So God has entrusted you with this, but he has also empowered you with this. Young women are the strongest folks that are around. And lastly, he said, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. That's it. (laughs) And this could not be truer. First, he says, encourage them. Sometimes what we're tempted to do to our young guys is bring them down a notch. Aren't we? I mean, older guys are, right? (laughs) Trying to extra belly them on the basketball court so they fall down and we win. There's like, we're tempted to take our guys down a notch, but, but don't. Encourage them, not discourage, not dissuade, but encourage them. And what do they get to? They got one thing. Young Bowen had like, you know, that was like a long passage. Young Benny says, just be self-controlled. It's funny because like, uh, honestly, that's all they can handle. Like I, I tell my, I, I got girls, I got boys in my life. My, 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 my sons are young men. Got a recently married, you know, 22-ish, 3-ish, I don't know their ages, you know, 17, 19, 20-ish, you know, young men. And I'll say, hey, would you go in the garage and grab my drill? Uh-huh. Ellen, grab me a water. What do they come back with? A drill. There's no water. They cannot hear the second half of my statement. <laughs> ask any of your, if you have young teenage guys to, to middle-aged guys, you ask them, you try to give them two instructions, tell your husband, if you've got a younger husband, tell them, try to give them two instructions. What's he going to hear? Only the first one, none of the second one. But I told you, he's, oh, I don't know. Ooh. Can't handle two instructions. Just one instruction, that's it. Don't complicate it. Don't add an and or a but and in addition. None of those. They can't do ands, buts, or in additions, just, just one. And the Bible knows it, and so he says, you know what? Young man, just be self-controlled. <laughs> you know, that's it. You know, like, come on, like, that's all you can handle. That's good, good. And the self-controlled is a really cool Greek word. They, so if you read different translations, you're going to see different word for self-controlled because it's a really cool word that doesn't exist in English. So I'm going to tell you what it means in Greek, but it's like, not going to be a single word. It's going to be like a phrase, right? So in Greek, this phrase means like, it means uh, self-control means that you have a, a strong mind, that your mind is strong enough, and it's learned to govern your instincts. It's learned to govern your passions or your, your, your fire so that those things are in their proper place and used appropriately. So all of that, that's, that's self-control, right? So what it's saying is, young men, like what you've got to do is you've got to use your incredible brain that God give you, gave you to channel that fire you have. Because young men, what do they have? They have fire and bravado and intensity and, and stuff. And they want to accomplish and they want to build and they got to do. And, the, and there's so much going on. And there's just, there's just this oh, that comes with young manness. 
And the Bible says, get that thing, get that fire, and focus it in the right, appropriate way. Do good with that. Because if you don't, you're going to fire in all sorts of ways that aren't good. We see that all the time in reality, not just in the Bible, but in our lived reality, where young men with lots of passions do all sorts of stupid things, ruining their lives and others. And so the Bible says, young man, what you got to do, don't worry about all the other noise. What you do is you take that strength of mind that you think that you have, that you know you have, and grab onto those passions and govern every instinct that you have so that it will be pointed towards the good. So to our young men here, channel that fire. Channel your passion. Control the drive that you have because you have it so that it launches in the right direction to become the goodest that you can. The goodest dude that's ever been around. Channel your passions, your fires, your desires to become that, that man. And then Paul gives a quick word to uh, his friend Titus himself. He says, in everything, you yourself, Titus, set, up, set them an example by doing what's good. And your teaching show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. So this is what he's saying to his friend Titus. And all these things set an example by choosing the morally correct path, doing what's good. You yourself are the pattern for good work. Titus has to be more than a teacher. He's got to live it out in front of them. Otherwise, what do people do? They reject it because that person's just a hypocrite. His guidance to others couldn't be taken seriously if he himself wasn't walking with the Lord. One great measure of if we're doing good is that those who oppose us don't have any ammunition to fire at us. Even if, even if you're in a disagreement with that person, even if someone doesn't agree with you or, or they're not even Christian. But if you've navigated them in a way that was good, God-honoring morally right, then they'll have no ammunition to fire at you as a hypocrite. When I was doing gang ministry, every single gang member that came into, and there were many, hundreds and hundreds of gang members, drug addicts that came through our ministry, every single person, guys and gals, knew that I stood against drug dealing, that I absolutely detest the practice of selling drugs to other folks. They, they knew that I was against murder. I am absolutely firmly, morally against murder and, and shooting people and drive-bys and turf wars, and I'm opposed to all that. I'm opposed to the exploitation of women that happens through this. I'm actively trying to get you out of the gang if you come to my church and, and when you bring the little homies there, I'm going to try to get them to not commit to your gang. And every single person knew that was true when they came to the church, and yet they still came to the church because they also knew that I absolutely loved them. No matter what. I mean, I visited a guy in prison two weeks after he murdered someone because I loved him. And he knew I loved him. And he knew I didn't condone murder. And so they have no accusation, not because I'm perfect, but because they know that I love them. 
There's no accusation in love. You may disagree, but you don't accuse. They were convinced that no matter what they did, I would still love them, and they were right. They knew that I would give my life for them, even as gangbangers and drug addicts. And that was totally true. So, non-believers, in whatever circle that you travel with with non-believers, probably not gang members, knowing our church, but they got to know that you love them. So maybe you're surrounded in your workplace by homosexuality. Then you better make sure that you love them more than your own Christian image or what other people think. Maybe you're surrounded by materialistic people who think that money is everything at your workplace or your circles. They better know that you love them much more than you love your own job or the money that comes from that and that you love them because you love God. Allow no accusation because people don't accuse those whom they love and they know they're loved by. So no accusations because you have lived and you have loved good. Continues on, says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. Try to please them, not to talk back, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. So in every way, they'll make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, we don't have any modern equivalent of a slave any longer, thank God. But the modern principle might be, if you found yourself at the very lowest rung of society, if you're the bottom rung of society, you can still honor God. You can still do good, even in the worst possible societal situation. God still calls you to be good and not to use an excuse of your circumstances why I'm not good. And so we better not use any excuse of my circumstances, but my parents, but my upbringing, but my poverty, but my this, but my work, but my stress, but my... None of those things are excuses for not doing the good that God calls us to do. For everyone, no matter who, the opportunity to make the teaching about God attractive by how you act is available when you choose the good. We often think that we need better words to make the gospel more attractive. We don't. Better words are fine, but we, we really need our gooder lives. Overwhelmed with love. Inundate people with love. And they can't say anything against it. You don't need better words. You don't need to learn the gospel better, more Bible. Just, just love people better. Make morally right choices. Do good in your own life as a living example. And we end with this. He says, for the grace of God, it's appeared to all people, and it offers salvations to everyone. Grace brings salvation. You don't go out and get it, your own salvation, it comes to you, and you have the opportunity to receive it. There's one gospel of grace for all men. God doesn't have gospel of grace for some and a gospel of law or self-justification for others. All people find themselves only in salvation by the grace of God alone. No rank or class or type of person is outside the saving influence of God's grace. We always have to come back to this idea of grace 
first before we talk about doing good. Because being morally right or choosing good paths only come from our position of grace. Not to earn God's favor or his love, but because he loves us and he puts that smile on our face and he puts that love in our heart, then I care and love about other people. Not flipped, otherwise we become the exact people he's writing against. Legalism. And that is never what it's been about. So do good because you have grace, not because you earn grace, but as a result of it. And grace is available for each of us every single morning. It's available this morning. Grace to live our, the lives of good that God wants us to live in the, whatever life stage you find yourself in right now. Grace to, to love better because if I'm on my own, my love runs out. But when I'm tapped into the well of God, that, that well of love never runs out. And so would you take a moment with me this morning and just receive grace again. Grace wasn't a one-time offer. It's a daily moment, moment after moment, time after time offer that God says, come into my goodness. Grace is my unmerited favor for you. I love you right where you are. It doesn't matter what you've done this week. It doesn't matter what you did 10 minutes ago. It doesn't matter if you didn't listen to Pastor Sam's sermon. I love you right now, and I give you my goodness. And so would you take a moment this morning to allow God to refresh you. Say, God, I want to receive your grace again so that I could live for you, so that I could do good. I want to, but not by myself and not to earn your love, but because you love me as a reaction to you first. Would you pause and take a minute and just receive this morning for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That grace is available right now for you. And then we'll worship and close our our service by worship.